Heavenly Father, we enter your gates of thanksgiving, your courts of praise. We exalt you for who you are. Our focus prayer right now is for some friends who are sitting among others that may not be family members. I pray Acts 26, 18 to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God. I pray that you will decrease the family of the devil and increase the family of God. I pray as it was on the day of Pentecost, there'll be deep conviction that can only come from the God above. Don't let anybody leave this room tonight without an absolute certainty that their name is in the book of life. And we'll give you praise, honor, and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. It's coming a day when the final sentence of history will be written. God will reach his holy hand out of heaven and put the eternal period at the end of that sentence and time will be no more. That scene was revealed to the apostle John on the island of Patmos and recorded for us in a book known as the book of Revelation. Revelation 119, write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. These things will come to pass. There's good news tonight. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. If you're genuinely born again, this event you'll never have to kneel at. You'll never have to be judged by because your sins were judged at Calvary. 30 times the apostle John writes, and I saw, and I saw. I want you to pay close attention tonight, and many of you are focused and listening real well, and I want to thank you in advance for that. I want you to see what he saw. First of all, I want you to see the exaltation of, of the judge. In verse number 11, the Bible says, I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it. First, see the exalted person who is sitting on this throne. I know because the Bible says so. John 5:22. the father judges no man, but he commits all judgment to the son, that's Jesus Christ. Acts 17, 31, he hath appointed a day in which he shall judge the world by that man whom he hath ordained, given assurance unto all men, and that he raised him from the dead, that's Jesus Christ. Romans 2.16, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. You say, but I thought Jesus was the Lamb of God. Yes, he is. When John saw him, he said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and God wants to save you, but here he's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Understand this, young people. He'll be your justifier or he'll be your judge, the exalted person. Notice his exalted position. He's sitting on the throne, and there's never been a throne like this because there's never been a judge like this. Psalm 9 and verse 4, thou sittest upon thy throne judging right. Psalm 45, 6, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Kings come and go. This king will be eternal. He will never abdicate his throne. In Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I also saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. I asked myself the question, where is this throne? Matthew 25, I read about the judgment of nations, but that is a throne that's set up on planet earth, not this one. Revelation chapter 4, I read about a throne in heaven that has a rainbow behind it, a sign of God's mercy, but there's no mercy here. There is a throne of mercy tonight. Hebrews 4, 16, let us come forth therefore boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But I don't believe this throne is on the earth. I don't believe it's yonder in the third heaven. I believe it's somewhere in outer space and I can see the king of the ages as he steps down from the heavens above and sits down upon that throne and the world shakes. There's never been a judgment like this. Notice also exalted power. It's called a great throne. We get our term mega from that. Psalm 48, 1, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In Psalm 147, 5, great is our God and of great power. His understanding is infinite. 
Matthew 28, 18, all power, Jesus said, is given unto me in heaven and earth. And when he comes back in Revelation 19, they will say, hallelujah, the Lord God omnipotent, all powerful reigneth. It intrigues me that when Jesus comes and sits on this throne, the heavens and the earth pass away. Get that. That may mean the solar system will burn itself out. His presence, majesty, awesome power is so great that even the stars cannot stay in place. They close and become dark, as it were. You know, the greatest thrill of our lives as born-again believers is to see the face of Jesus Christ. And one day we will see him. Fanny Crosby saying, face to face with Christ my Savior, face to face, what shall it be? When with rapture I behold him, Jesus Christ, who died for me. But our greatest thrill, if you're not saved, is your greatest threat. There'll be no smile upon his face. You'll not hear him say, come unto me all ye labor the heavy laden, I'll give you rest. You will see the austere fear of God in his face and you will prostrate yourself before him. Notice the exaltation of the judge and then it's a white throne. 80 times in the Bible white is used, it's always referring to purity. In Isaiah 118 says, come now let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they red like crimson, they shall be as wool. In Matthew chapter 28 and verse 3, his countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as light. When you get into Revelation chapter 2, there is a white stone. Chapter 3, white robes. Chapter 6, there is a white, uh, chapter 19, there's a white horse. And constantly it is telling us of his purity. There is no way that you can con him. Nobody's going to pay him under the table. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the court of no repeal, Jesus Christ presiding the exaltation of the judge. But down in verse 12, you'll notice the examination by the judge because the Bible goes on and says, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. When you read dead in the Bible, it can be one of two things. Here it's both. It can be people who have died and passed away or people who are separated from God. Ephesians 2.1, you have he quickened who are dead and trespasses and sin. Here it's both. These people are eternally separated from God. These people have died and they're now coming back to have to kneel at the great white throne. Notice the assembling of the dead where they come from, verse 13. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. Now somebody said, well, that's symbolic. No, it's not. You realize the first civilization was drowned. Uh, Noah preached for over 100 years. They thought it was all a joke. He and his wife, he had three sons, each had a wife. Eight people got on the ark. Everybody else drowned and went to hell. Listen carefully, every one of them is going to the great white throne judgment. The sea will give up the dead which are in it. Death and hell will deliver up the dead which are in it. Now death is the place of the departed body, it would be called the grave. But hell is the place of the departed soul. Now tonight you need to understand that hell and the lake of fire are not the same place. I'll say it again. Hell and the lake of fire are not the same place. If somebody preached that to you, he's not done any damage to you because everybody who goes to hell will ultimately go to the lake of fire. But here's what happens. If you were to die tonight, your soul would come out of your body. If you're not genuinely born again, uh, your body will be buried, your soul will go to hell. It's a horrendous place. Luke 16 describes it in detail, and I assure you, do you want to go there? You do not want to go there for one second, much less for a million years. You do not want to spend any time there. But there comes a day when everybody who's in hell will be resurrected. I'll show you why in a moment. 
Their bodies will be reconstituted. They will have to kneel at the great white throne, and then ultimately they will be cast into the lake of fire. Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. There's a big movement today about cremation. It's, it's worldwide. I want to take my stand against cremation. Cremation is not biblical. Cremation is out of the Hindu culture. I don't have time to go into all the details, but I want to simply say to you adults and you young people tonight, if you want to honor Jesus Christ in your life, why wouldn't you want to honor him in your death? You will never read about Christians being cremated, nor the Jewish people, unless they were burned because of judgment. But the mentality is this. I'll incinerate my body. I'll have it all cremated. It'll be a bunch of ashes. And God can never get to me. I have news for you. The first man was made out of the dust of the ground and God breathed into the breath of life. There is nothing, listen to me carefully, there is nothing you can do to your body that will keep you from going to the great white throne judgment if you've not been saved by God's grace. Job 21 and verse 30, the Bible says the wicked are reserved for the day of judgment. You can make a reservation in a motel and cancel it. You didn't make this reservation. God made it for you, and nobody cancels it. Proverbs 22 and 2, the rich and the poor meet together. When will that be? At the great white throne judgment, the assembling of the dead. They're small and great, rich and poor, smart and dumb. It makes no difference. Every last person who has rejected Christ and not been genuinely saved by the grace of Almighty God has to go to the judgment seat, and you do not want to be among that crowd. But there's not only the assembling of the dead, there's the accounting of the deeds. For the Bible goes on and says in verse 12, I saw the dead small and great stand before God. The books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead, look at verse 12, were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Now listen so you'll understand this. No born again believer will ever go to this judgment. This is not a place where any person who's been saved by the grace of God has to give an account of themselves. Tomorrow night, I'll talk about the judgment seat of Christ. It's for the believer. This is for unbelievers, unsaved people. People who may have raised their hand, but they never received Christ. People may have walked an aisle, but they never walked with God. They've never been genuinely born again. And the Bible says there's gonna be the accounting of the deeds. I believe there'll be three books there. The Bible here talks about two. But there's another verse in John 12, 48 that says, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words has one that judges him, the word that I have spoken to him, it will judge him in the last day. Look right up here and don't miss this. I'm convinced as sure as I'm preaching to you tonight, the word of God will be there. The word of God that you didn't listen to when it was preached. The word of God that you thought was kind of funny. The word of God that when it was plainly given to you and told you your condition, you argued with. The word of God that showed you the love of Jesus Christ. The word of God that's being preached right now that's telling you about a place you don't want to go. The word of God that lifted up Jesus Christ and showed his death, burial, and resurrection and soon return. You can reject this tonight, but one of the last things you will see if you go to the lake of fire is the word of the living God. God, and it will haunt you for all eternity because you remember a night at a Christian camp called Southland when you could have been genuinely been saved by the grace of God, but you would not receive the word. The word of God will be there, the living word and the written word. And then the book of life will be there. We'll talk about it when we close. But there are books. What is that? 
that uh, against Almighty God, your works will be judged. You say, well, preacher, if I'm going to the lake of fire anyway, why do I have to go to the great white throne? Because it determines, don't miss this, the degree of punishment that you will receive in the lake of fire. Take your Bible, please, and go to the book of Matthew, chapter number 11. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 11. Thank you for listening. Pay close attention as the Word of God is coming your way. Verse 20. Matthew, chapter 11, and verse 20. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of the mighty works were done because they repented not. And woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for the mighty works which had been done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it'll be more tolerable, bearable, and durable for Tyre and Sidon in that day of judgment than for you. Verse 23, thou Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I say unto you, don't miss verse 24, it shall be more tolerable, bearable, and durable for Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Let me take the last one. He said, Capernaum, I come in and out of your city. It's my home base of operations. You've seen my miracles. You've heard my messages, but many of you have not received me. Now, you're going to come to this judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah is going to come to this judgment, but Capernaum, get this. Sodom and Gomorrah is not going to have to bear the burden that you're going to have to bear. They're not going to be incarcerated in the same manner that you are. You see, every time I've come and you've said no, you've added to your torture in hell. You know, we realized last night as we looked to the book of Genesis that Lot, 2 Peter 2 and 8, was vexed in his righteous soul because he's called a righteous man. Interestingly enough, Lot brought nobody, watch me now, he brought nobody to God Almighty, including his own family. So basically, Sodom had no Bible. So here's what God said. They're going to come, they're going to be judged but your judgment is going to be more severe. Did you realize every time you hear a gospel message and play games, God adds adds to your torture in the regions of the damned? In the book of Romans chapter two and verse five, the Bible says, because of the hardness and impotent heart, you have treasured up wrath against the day of wrath. In chapter two and verse six, he says, according to your works, you'll be judged. Now, good friend, you need to understand this. The judgment seat of Christ, everybody does not receive the same rewards as a Christian. And the lake of fire, everybody is not tortured in the same fashion. Every gospel message you've heard will add to your torture in the lake of fire. Every time you stood on an invitation, leaned over to your buddy and snickered, will add to your torture in the lake of fire. Every time you intentionally put your head down and said, I'm not listening to this message, is going to add to your torture in the lake of fire. One of the most foolish things you'll ever do is play a little game with God because God's undefeated and nobody has ever beaten him. I'm pleading with you tonight to think about your soul. You have one soul. That soul is going to live somewhere forever, and you do not want to spend an eternity damned and doomed in the lake of fire apart from Almighty God. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, that we're to remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth when evil days come not, because there's coming a day when you will give an account for everything. Can you imagine if you committed 10 sins a day, everybody commits more than that, and you live to be 70 years of age, you'd have to give individually, personally accountable a quarter of a million sins one at a time to Jesus. 
Smart aleck lady came to me one night and she said, we don't have time for that. Jesus won't do that. I said, lady, you don't understand. There's no time here. This is eternity. A thousand years is one day and one day is a thousand years. You may have hidden everything from your parents. You may have hid it from the principal. You may have hidden it from your pastor, but nothing is hidden from God. And those books are open and your works are there. And then you have to be cast into the lake of fire to be separated from God for all eternity. And I want to appeal to you tonight, don't you take this message lightly. Don't just sit and say, well, he's speaking, but it didn't make any difference to me. I'll be okay. How in the world, you say, could you have degrees of punishment in the lake of fire, Henry Morris writes, it may be that the resurrected body is designed with individual nervous system whose sensory responses are graduated in proportion to the punishment. Everybody in this room tonight has a pain level, everybody. I have two daughters. One is a musician, the other is a nurse. Can you figure out which one has a higher pain level? When we used to take these girls to the doctor and they had to get a shot, my little musician would look at the needle and almost perish. My now, uh, ER nurse would say, put it right there. It didn't bother her a bit. But they have different degrees of pain levels. And somehow, my friend, a young man in a public school here hears the gospel once and says no. And a young man who sat in a Christian home and gone to a good Bible preaching church and had service after service and Bible verse after Bible verse and all kinds of music come your direction, you're not going to suffer the same that that young man is. Yours is going to be far worse, and you do not want that to happen. Now, I want to call your attention to something in Matthew chapter 11 that's in verse 20. He said, these works were done because they repented not. Look again, please, down in verse 21. And he says in the latter phrase, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. I want to answer tonight a controversial question that has been asked for many, many years. And I want you to look at me in the face and listen to me as I quote these verses. Someone said, Dr. Farrell, do you believe that repentance is a part of genuine salvation? The answer is absolutely, and I want to prove it from the word of God. In Matthew 3, 1 and 2, in those days came John the Baptist preaching the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4, 17, from that time forth began Jesus to preach and to say, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Luke 13, 3 and 5, except you repent, you will perish. I will tell you on the authority of the Bible, you can turn or burn, you can repent or spend eternity away from God. He said so twice. Acts 3, 19, repent ye therefore and be converted. Why? That your sins may be plotted out when the times are refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Acts 17, 30, the times of ignorance God winked at. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Study your Bible. Acts 20, 21, testifying to the Greeks and the Jews, repentance toward God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. If you were to look up every verse I just quoted and many more I could give you, everyone in context refers to salvation. So if you don't think repentance is a part of genuine salvation, you have heresy because you've not studied your Bible. What is repentance? It's not your work. Acts 5.31, it's a gift just like faith is. The word repent means to change your mind. That's where it came from. For instance, 
Have you ever trusted baby baptism? Did you realize there's no baby in the entire Bible that ever got baptized to go to heaven? I'm not trying to be your enemy. I'm going to be your friend. If you're trusting baby baptism to go to heaven, you are right now going to hell. And unless you change your mind, you will never meet Jesus Christ and enjoy heaven. Repent, Jesus said. Have you ever trusted confirmation? There's no such thing in the Bible as confirmation for salvation. That's a man-made term. If you're trusting confirmation, you're going to hell right now. You better change your mind. Only God can change your life. If you've ever trusted some work that you've done, Titus 3, 5 said, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it's important that you understand the plain teaching of the Bible. Repentance is not your work. It's your willingness to say no to this way and come to Jesus Christ. You better change your mind about church. You better change your mind about baptism. Mary does not pray for you. That's not taught anywhere in the word of God. The Pope is not the vicar of Christ, and if he ever goes to heaven, he'll have to repent and get saved, and I'm going to tell the truth if everybody in America hates my guts because I don't want people to wake up in the regions of the dam thinking they've done all these wonderful things. You're not going to heaven because of anything you do for Jesus. If you ever go to heaven, you'll go because of everything Jesus did for you. So I want to ask you tonight, has there ever been a time and a place you didn't want your way, you didn't want to go that way? You don't turn over your life. You don't turn over and be, become a new person. You don't do works and God accepts them. It's not salvation plus works. It's salvation that works. But Jesus said, repent. And then he said in Mark 1.15, repent ye and believe. Now what does that mean? Somebody said, I believe in God, so does the devil. You say, I believe that Jesus died and was buried and raised again. Everybody watch me, so does the devil. The word faith means to put your total weight upon, to put all of your confidence in. Man, are you listening well? Please don't miss this. When you come and get saved, first you must believe who Jesus is, and I want to announce he is God and God alone. He's not just the son of God, he's not a martyr of God, and he wasn't just the friend of God. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. It's not Jesus plus anything. It's Jesus Christ alone. I had a man come to me one time. He said, I'm going to heaven, but I don't believe Jesus is God. I said, no, you are not. You better read your Bible because nobody who denies that Jesus Christ is God has eternal life abiding in them. You don't come to a salvation that you made. You come to a Savior that made you. When you come by faith, you come to him for who he is, and you come to him for what he did for you. Have you ever stopped to consider this? There's a lot of people who have a historical Jesus. Preacher, what do you mean? Well, I believe Jesus died, I believe he was buried, and I believe he was resurrected. That's historically accurate. It's taught in the Bible, and history validates that. But that's not how you get saved. If you want to be saved, you need more than history. You need reality. Don't miss this. You may miss heaven. It's not just Jesus died and was buried and raised again. It's the fact that Jesus loves me and he died for me and he was buried for me and he was raised again for me. If you have simply a historical Jesus, you'll live eternally away from him. But when you come by faith to the reality that when, you, when Jesus was on the cross, you were on his mind. And if you'd been the only person that ever lived, he would have still died in your place. Now you're trading history for reality. Tell me. 
You and your, you, you're sitting here tonight. You're the only one that can give your testimony. When was Jesus more than history? When was he a reality? When did you come by faith? For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And a man looked me in the face and he said, I'm going to heaven, but I don't believe Jesus was raised from the dead. I said, sir, if he wasn't raised from the dead, he's not who he says he is, he's a liar. And if he's a liar, he couldn't save himself, much less you. You've got to understand something, young people. You don't negotiate with God. You come on his terms. You don't make the terms, you take the terms. And Jesus said, repent, change your mind and believe. Put all of your confidence in him. And then the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And it doesn't mean this. They're about ready to kick me out of school. I better pray a prayer. I'm about to have a wreck. I better cry to Jesus. Man, I tell you what, I'm going through trouble. I just bet, no, 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 that's not how you come. When you call upon the name of the Lord, you're admitting you're a helpless, hopeless, hell-bound sinner. You're understanding nobody can save you except Jesus Christ. You're acknowledging who he is. And when you call upon Upon him, you're receiving what he has done for you, and your total confidence is in him. A number of years ago, I was preaching in North Carolina. The pastor's son came to see me. He said, Dr. Farrell, I'm not saved and I need to be saved. I said, Okay, Matt. We knelt down and he trusted Christ. He had tears in his eyes. He said, Can you go with me to tell my father what happened? I said, I'll go with you and you tell your daddy what happened. His father recently passed away, he was a dear friend of mine. We walked in and his dad looked and said, Matt, what you here for? Well, he said, Dad, I just came to tell you something. I just got saved in chapel. His dad looked back at him and he said, Now, Matt, I thought your mother led you to Jesus. He said, Daddy, I want to tell you exactly what happened. You may not remember this, but I do. He said, Mama was preparing to give me a whipping. And I said to her, What's wrong with me, Mama, is I need to be saved. He said, Dad, she put down the belt and picked up the Bible. He said, I didn't get a whipping and I didn't get saved either. He said, all these years I've sat and said, well, nobody knows but me. He said, you remember a couple of weeks ago, I was out riding my bicycle delivering papers. He was about 15. He said, yes. He said, do you remember the car that ran me off the road? My bike went one way and the papers went one way. He said, son, I remember that. He said, daddy, laying in that ditch, I realized if that car had hit me, I'd be burning in hell right now. He said, I want you to know that your son did not get assurance. Your son did not make just a little decision, I got saved by the grace of God. Now what I wanna ask you to do tonight while I'm preaching the word of God is give yourself your testimony. When did you get born again? Summer, winter, spring, or fall? Where'd you get born again? At home, at church, at Sunday school, at Bible school? Who led you to Christ? Mom, dad, brother, sister, pastor, evangelist? What Bible reason can you point to that guarantees you're on your way to heaven? That's giving your testimony. Now don't give me this, what my mother said. A friend of mine said, Doc, I want to tell you a story. He said, one of the sharpest girls in our youth department came to see me. She said, shut down and said, you know, uh, Pastor, I just don't know that I'm going to heaven. He said, now, wait a minute. You're the number one quizzer. You're the most respected girl in the youth department. What do you mean you're not saved? He said, every time I ask, are you saved? She, he said, you raise your hand. She said, I've raised my hand many times, but I've never known. He said, well, tell me when you think you got saved. He said, she said, I'll tell you what my mother said. My mother said when I was three years of age, she led me to Christ, and I don't remember one thing about it. Now, young people, if you got saved when you were three, I'm not trying to talk you out of your salvation. You walk up and say, let me tell you what happened when I'm three. God bless you. I'm for you. I don't remember anything when I, when I was three. 
you got a wonderful memory if you can, but I don't remember one day of three. I don't remember much of four, and I finally came out of my coma at five. But if you can remember three, I'm for you. But her whole testimony, you better watch me now, was based on what her mother said. So she'd go and see her mom and say, Mama, tell me what happened again. She said, I'd go to my bed and I'd lay there and I'd cry myself to sleep and said, Mama knows something that I don't know anything about. She said to the youth pastor, I am tired of trying to trust a memory that I don't have any recollection of. Now, young people, with all due respect to your mom and dad, they didn't write the Bible, and they don't put your name in the book of life. If you're sitting here tonight, and all you can say is, my mother said, my father said, you better meet Jesus Christ, because neither one of them will take up for you at the great white throne judgment. I was just preaching outside Washington, D.C. I sat down to have a hamburger, and a fellow looked at me, and he said, boy, I'm so glad you're at our church. He said, I've been hearing you preach for years. I said, well, you're married and have children now? He said, yep. He said, when I was 13 years of age, we brought our youth group to hear you preach at the Wilds Christian Camp. I said, man, that's been a number of years ago. He said, yes, sir. That's the week I got saved. He said, I can tell you where I was sitting. I can tell you what you were preaching, and I got saved. I said, well, you were raised in a Christian home. Your dad's the pastor of the church. Oh, he said, yeah. He said, I prayed a prayer to please my daddy, but I knew every day I had never been saved by the grace of Almighty God. It's interesting, I just preached at leadership conference out at Lancaster, California, and I had a young lady walk up to me and she said, I trusted Jesus Christ under your ministry, raised in a Christian home, went to Christian school, but I did not know Jesus Christ. Get this, your Christian home will not save you. Your Christian school will not save you. A walk down the aisle will not save you. If you're gonna get saved, you must repent and believe the gospel and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sitting out at leadership conference and there's a friend of mine from Wisconsin. I said, brother, how you doing? He said, when you're coming for a meeting and so we're lining one up. He said, do you remember that my wife got saved in an open revival and he named the Bible college? I said, you know, I'd forgotten that. He said, here we are married. I've been called to preach. We get off in Bible college and my wife got out of bed and looked at me and she said, honey, I don't know Jesus Christ. She said, I've always been taught and understand about Jesus, but I've never had a time and a place when I personally accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm asking you tonight to examine yourself. I'm not gonna examine you, to see if you be in the faith. What are you trusting for heaven? Do you realize your soul is more so important? You don't wanna just trust something somebody said. You don't wanna trust a theme song. You don't wanna trust an event. You want your focus of your faith to be totally and forever in Jesus Christ. Can you prove from this book that you have been born again by the Spirit of God? You will have no argument in that day. There'll be no time for you to say, but Jesus, I really meant to get this thing done. It's too late then. We have seen tonight the exaltation of the judge. We've seen the examination by the judge. In closing, I want you to see the execution of justice. Look back in Revelation chapter 20 and notice the teaching of the Bible in verses 14 and 15. The Bible says, and death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever is not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, young people, God is a God of love. Look right up here. He's patient. He's long-suffering. But there's no patience here. There's no mercy here because these people had an opportunity just like you have, and they threw it away. 
And so what they're getting is what they deserve. You cannot say God is not fair. You cannot say God is not patient. How many gospel messages have you heard? How many times have you walked away under conviction? How many times have you cried yourself to sleep at night? And how many times have you tried to fight hearing the preaching of the word of God? How many times? God is for you. But here, he's bringing judgment. Romans 12, 19, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 34 and verse eight, this is the day of the Lord's judgment. And so I want you tonight, I want everybody in this building to imagine in your mind uh, sitting behind the throne of God and as far as your eye can see, there's a single file line. It's been estimated by some that there's been at least 45 billion people live on the planet. I think that's a little high, but can you imagine most of them are going to be at this judgment? One at a time, they're not coming collectively. They're coming one at a time. And when they come, they're going to have to kneel at the feet, the nail-scarred feet of Jesus, that they could have trusted and been saved, and they're going to carry that in their mind for all eternity, knowing they could have had mercy. Now, I want to ask you a question tonight. Who do you see in that line? You say, preacher, I didn't think I was going to this judgment. I said as I started, you'll never have to go to this as being judged. But I'm convinced every Christian, don't miss this, will be at this judgment. You see, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2, Paul writes, do you not know that we shall judge angels? We've never done that. Do you not know that we shall judge the world? We have never done that. World is mankind. And the word judge there is not the same as his judgment, which is final, but it's like an assessment. We'll sit, I believe, behind him. We'll look out. We'll know that he's righteous and holy and just and that these people could have been saved. Now stop for a moment and answer, who do you see? Who's kneeling there? Is that your mother or father? You say, preacher, you're being mean. I'm trying to help you. Some of you in this building have never one time ever said anything to your unsaved parents. Not one word. As a matter of fact, there's not a whole lot about your life that's any different from the unsaved neighbor kids you hang out with. Is it any wonder they end up there? There's a young lady got saved into my ministry. She went home. Her life was so changed. Within two weeks, her dad said to her mom, look, I don't know what's happened to our daughter, but we're going to church and find out. The good pastor was wise enough to preach his message and put the gospel in, and mom, dad, and the entire family got saved. Are you listening to me? Because a young lady's life changed, and they wanted what she has. Some of you, your life stinks. You're not even close to walking with God if saved at all. Who is there? Is that somebody you go to school with? Is that a brother or a sister? Is that a close friend? Is that somebody you play ball with? Who is it that you see? Now suddenly you're sitting there and you're looking and your heart is about to race out of its chest and you hear them plead for mercy but the, but the great white throne is there and the book of life is open and there's a blank space where their name could have been. And suddenly the angels come and they pick them up and they're going to hurl them into the lake of fire. And though the Bible doesn't say this, I've often wondered, could it be that that person would look up and spot you, see you eyeball to eyeball, and just before they're cast into the lake of fire, is it possible they might scream, why do you tell me? And some of you in this building have never witnessed. And some of you have a stinking testimony. And you'd rather be cool than committed, and it's all about you, and you do not realize that in Revelation chapter 20, that's when God wipes all tears from our eyes. But in Revelation chapter, that's 21, but in Revelation chapter 20, I'm convinced that as we see those we might have reached, we might have cared about, 
Cast in the lake of fire, we will leap. I was preaching at a camp like this. I was done. I was hot and sweaty. A number of young people asked to talk with me. And I noticed a big old football player standing off to my right, and he waited. When he walked up, he said, are you Dr. Tom Farrell? I said, yes. He said, I drove a long ways to see you. I've just come from the funeral of my best friend. I said, I'm sorry. He said, sir, I've lived a wicked life. He said, I'm saved, but I've not walked with God. He said, I sat at the funeral today, and I realized my best friend is in hell. Then he started shaking. He said, sir, my best friend is in hell. What am I going to do? And I looked at him and took him by the arms, and I looked him straight in the face, and I said, son, you need to understand this. There's nothing you can do for a guy that's in hell. It's too late. But there is something that you can do for people who haven't already gone. I said, let me ask you a question. You welcome to God? He said, no. How long have you been saved? He told me. I said, well, the mess you're invi- you, you've been indulging in, he told me. I said, are you sick of it? He said, I am. I didn't even ask him. He dropped down on a concrete floor, poured his heart out, and he said, dear God, I'm sick of my sin. I don't want anybody else to go to hell because of me. He said, thank you for praying with me. I didn't know if I'd ever see him again. Next year, I'm at the same camp. I'm looking over the right-hand side. I thought, well, here's that big old football player again. Up he walks. He said, sir, do you remember me? I said, yes, I prayed with you last year. You gave your life to the Lord right here on concrete after your best buddy died in a car accident and went to hell. I said, what's the last year been like? He smiled real big, and here's what he said. He said, for the last 12 months, mister, I've been living for Jesus Christ. He said, I've led seven of my buddies to Jesus, and I'm not going to let anybody else go to hell. Now, I want to ask you a question all over this building. You have been listening well, and I want you to get as sober as you've ever been in your life. I want to ask you a question. Are you living in the reality of the great white throne? You ever pray like that? You ever walk with God like that? Have you ever wept like that? Have you ever worked up your nerve and said, God, if they shut me down and make fun of me, that's okay. I've got to warn them about the coming of this terrible judgment. Can you prove by your life that you're living in the reality of the great white throne judgment? Now, who do you see? Is that you? You're in the youth group, but now you're in that line. You may have been a quizzer, but now you're in that line. You always raised your hand in a service, but there was an empty place in your heart, and now you're in that line. Is that you? Your name is called. You won't go with any friends. You can sit in a camp like this and be a hot dog, but nobody goes except by themselves there. And you kneel on nothing held up only by God's omnipotence. You plead for mercy, but there's no mercy, but there is a book. And the book is called the book of life. This is a hymnal. It will be the book of life. There's a couple of views of the book of life. One, When you get saved by the grace of God, God puts your name in the book. That's one view. Second view, God in his love and his mercy has already put your name there, and the moment you say no for the last time, it's blotted out. In Exodus 32, 32, Psalm 69, 28, and Revelation 3 and verse 5, the second seems to be the way it is. But people ask me all the time, which one are you convinced of? I'm convinced of this. Young people, if your name is not in the book of life, you are not going to get into heaven. And one of the last things that you're going to remember for all eternity is the blank space that could have had your name. It will haunt you every moment that you're in eternity in the lake of fire, lake, liquid, fire, liquid fire. I went on tonight, the internet, and I was looking up, and I I wrote the question, how hot is the lava flow in Hawaii? Answer, minimum, 
2,124 degrees. 2,100 degrees, that's after it's come out of the volcano. That's while it's moving. When Mount St. Helens erupted, it had the power of a 50 megaton bomb. When it began to go down the side of the mountain, it was 2,000 degrees hot. It incinerated everything in its way. Young people, some of you have watched so much television, and I feel sorry for you. I'm not your enemy, I'm your friend. But you've watched so much television and so many horror programs, and you've seen so much blood and guts, it's almost like you become desensitized. Please understand this tonight. This is not a movie. This is not a television program. There's not an opportunity to run and get a Coca-Cola and get you some popcorn. This is the court of no appeal. There is no second chance here. Can you imagine being hurled into a lake of fire? You swim a thousand years this way, but no way out. A thousand years this way, but no way out. A thousand years this way, but no way out. A thousand years this way, but no way out. And after you've been there billions and billions of years, you scream, how long? And you hear the answer, forever and forever and forever. Do you realize how long eternity is? If I gave you a tablespoon and I said, fill up the Grand Canyon, you couldn't do it, but if you did and finished, a second of eternity would be gone by. If I handed you a thimble and I said, go and empty all the oceans from all the world, which you could not do, but if you did, a second, second of eternity would be gone by. Do you realize in this room tonight, Almost every sponsor that we had prayer with tonight raised their hand and said, there are young people in our youth department we don't believe are born again. You realize tonight all over this house, some of your own friends raised their hand probably praying for you. You see, some of you think you've been so smooth and so smart, you have deceived everybody. You haven't conned anybody but yourself. And there's gonna come a day when the preaching like this won't affect you. And you won't have to try to not to listen, you won't care. Your heart will become like a brick it is called becoming a reprobate. And you can sit in a service like this and reject Jesus Christ so many times that God will simply say, I'm not speaking to you anymore. Holy Spirit, leave him alone. He may even say, Satan, that's yours. He doesn't want me. He thinks it's all a joke. Not gonna sing in the song services. Not gonna listen when the preaching's coming. He's been doing this for years. I'm not messing with him anymore. He belongs to you. And you mark this down and put it in highlights. When God gives you to the devil, there's nothing we can do for you. You need to understand there could be a time that you'll stand up and walk out of a service like this and God will never deal with you again. In my ministry, I think I've met five people like this and I'll tell you, I do not tell you that as a smart aleck, I tell you that very sober. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Can you imagine that you are incarcerated in fire? Now, somebody said, do you believe it's in the heart of the earth? I don't know. Henry Morris makes an interesting statement about the black holes in outer space. He says, a star is a lake of fire. It is uh, these stars and galaxies, though burning, do not give off light that is visible. They're called black holes. As you sit in this auditorium tonight, the United States of America has telescopes on one, and they estimate, they estimate that that star is 100,000 degrees. Imagine being picked up by the angels, thrown through outer space, 
And when you go into the molten lava of a star that's 100,000 degrees, that's where you'll be for all eternity. I'm saying to you tonight what Jesus said, come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest. I'm telling you tonight, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'm saying to you tonight, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now let's imagine tonight as the service is closing that I see him first and you don't. Through the back door comes Jesus. He doesn't bring a book that's like this, but he brings the book of life. This will be represented. As he's coming, I kneel. You turn around, you'll kneel because every knee will bow. He comes to the platform and he takes this book and says, everybody be seated. He said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Jesus Christ. This is not a skit. What this man has been preaching tonight, you're going to see visibly in these closing moments. He said, what I have in my hand is the book of life. I'm coming to your seat. If you really belong to me, then you'll be able to find your name in the book of life. And so he walks over to a young man that I've only said hello to and don't know his name and not judging him. And he said, son, if you belong to me, find your name. He goes down this row and then he's coming to your row. You can't run out for a bathroom break. You can't turn to a friend and say this is a joke. He walks up to you and says, find your name. You can't go home, call home and say, hey, mom, tell me about my baptismal certificate. Hey, mom, tell me how this happened. He walks up to you and to you and to you and he says, find your name. Would you be honest with yourself and God tonight? Are you certain upon the authority of the word of God that your name is in the book of life? Young people, your soul is the most precious thing that you have, and if you're sitting here tonight and you cannot prove from your Bible that you've been born again, that your name is in the book of life, don't run from God, run to God. This is your day, this is your time. Last week when I preached at Lancaster, my friend David Gibbs was there, we preached together. Years ago before I met him, he told a story that I have never forgotten. I want you to listen with total attention. He said in their home church, a teenage boy on Sunday morning, 17 years of age, came forward, and here's what he said, Pastor, I've come today because last night I learned to fear God. His pastor let somebody else close the service, and he said, Son, come in my office. He said, What brought the fear of God in your life? He said, Sir, last night I was working as an orderly in the hospital with one of my buddies. He said, They brought a burn patient, and what I saw changed my life. The man that was brought in had worked for a chemical factory as a maintenance man. In that chemical factory, they manufactured a white powder in minute forms that could clean out test tubes. It had to be used very, very carefully. Larger proportions was volatile, volatile and it could explode. This maintenance man noticed that one of the chemists had inadvertently left his desk drawer open and there was a vial of the chemical. He looked and see anybody, put it in his pocket, and he said, one of these days, I'm gonna have fun. It wasn't many weeks until he was having what the world calls fun in a party in his house. They were drugging and drinking, and suddenly he said, the chemical. He went and got it, put it in his pocket, called his friends to the back side of the house where the restroom was, and said, watch this. There were beads of water in the sink. As best he could in his inebriated state, he opened it and shook some of the powder in, and a flame came out of the sink. And people now were chanting, more, more, more. He's got his crowd, so he's going to try to show off. And he's moving now towards the toilet, but one foot gets caught behind the other foot, and he falls headlong. Some of it goes in, an explosion. Some of it got on his purse and began to eat through his clothing. People not as drunk as he was, two men took him to the hospital, to the emergency room. There stands these two orderlies, teenage boys. 
the nurse said, take his shirt off of him, I'll clean up his face. That young man said when she got the sterile telfa pad within the proximity of the man's face, a flame shot out of his face, consumed the telfa pad. He began to beat his face, screaming, I'm in hell. Do you hear me? I'm in hell. The doctor came. He did not know exactly the properties of that chemical and decided not to give him an anesthetic. Instead, they strapped him down and the boys had to hold him. And that doctor took his scalpel and went between the dermis and the epidermis of that skin and began to remove as much of that powder as he could. The man began to wreathe back and forth. As he began to sweat, where the white powder touched the sweat droplets, little blue flames would dance on his chest. He'd scream, I'm burning in hell. Do you hear me? I am in hell. Somebody help me, until he passed out. Those boys had to hold him down. They rolled him into recovery the teenage boy said, we couldn't move, we were petrified. The physician, who is a Christian, went to clean up, and when he came back, there stood those two boys. He paused long enough to look them in the face and said, boys, what you saw tonight is nothing compared to hell. And ladies and gentlemen, what I just preached tonight is nothing compared to the lake of fire. Answer an honest question. Are you sure your name is in the book of life? If you just said no or I don't know, tonight is your night to repent and believe the gospel. Let's bow our heads and hearts together. I do not need a pianist. Please do not leave the auditorium for any reason. Now, as you're sitting there tonight, I want you to imagine that Jesus Christ just stepped up to you. He just opened the book of life and he just said, find your 